Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Revelation 8, we had an incredible first gathering church. I pray that the Spirit will show in the same way uh, today. As many of you know, I'm going to start off like this. As many of you know, we bought a building, which is super exciting uh, for us, you know. Uh, yeah, you look around in here, it's kind of tight. You look in the parking lot, it's super tight. God just fishing loaves that thing, right? He multiplies parking spots somehow out there for us. Well, David also, Pastor David is on vacation. He's done an incredible job at leading this whole building thing. So when you see him and he gets back, make sure you tell him, good job. He's done a lot of hard work uh, for you, for me, in regards to that. If you've ever uh, bought a building or you bought a house to do a remodel, you know that the first thing you have to do uh, is demolition. Uh, There always has to be a demo day. They just did a demo week and a half at the current building, the building that we bought. They just demoed that. They started framing walls here shortly, which is super exciting. Uh, But in your own house, even if you buy a house to remodel, like my wife and I did, you have to have a demo day. And so uh, they told us that remodeling a house would be fun. And then they told us that there's all these fun shows you can watch on Netflix about ways you can cut money and save and do all this. And they, whoever they are, they need Jesus because they're a bunch of liars, okay? It's not easy. It's not super fun. They led us to 22 days without a kitchen sink, okay? I don't know if you've ever been in the same house with your wife and your three kids and you need to have a kitchen sink. It does not go well, okay? It's not good for your marriage, all right? And it's really tough. But every demolition, if you want the house or you want the project to look the way, to recreate it the way that you have in your head, there has to be a demo day. There has to be a demolition. Revelation chapter 8 that Joey read for us, listen here, it's Demo day on a cosmic scale. It's demolition day on a cosmic scale. In order for God to recreate the world, he has to demo everything that's not him. Everything that is unholy, everything that is not righteous, everything that is not perfectly suited the way that he wants it to be suited. If, if he's going to recreate, if this is going to be a recreation narrative for the kingdom of God, then God has to literally come in and demo everything that is the opposite of who he is. Everything evil, everything unrighteous has to go away. You don't usher in the perfection of the kingdom of God while it's ridden with imperfections. That doesn't happen. You with me? So he has to come in and he has to demo it. And so Revelation 8 is the beginning of the, what's called the day of the Lord. Revelation 8 begins with the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the martyrs going up into the kingdom of heaven. God hears the prayers of those martyrs, hears the prayers of the persecuted, and then those prayers are answered as they rain back down on the earth in judgment. He listens to them, and then he responds to them. Why? Because in order for God to truly answer your prayer, he has to demo everything unrighteous in your life. 
In order for God to truly answer the prayer, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, he has to demo everything that is in your life. In order for you to come to faith in Jesus and experience what's, experience what's called regeneration and you experience new life and you're empowered by the Holy Spirit and you profess faith in Jesus, in order for that to happen, he has to literally demo every bit of your identity prior to Jesus for him to take up residence in you. It's nothing new, but it is what we see here in the text in Revelation 8. And so Revelation 8 lays out what judgment day is going to begin to look like. The day of the Lord is going to look like demo day, if I may, on a cosmic level. All of creation is going to be affected. Now, before we enter into this section, I do understand there are many men and women in our church body, men, that have been ridden with anxiety about the book of Revelation. Um, If you're new, welcome to Heights. We're in the book of Revelation, okay? (laughs) There's a lot of men and women, though, women and men, that are ridden with anxiety. So before we get into Revelation 8, I'm going to give you a spoiler. Revelation 9 is part of Revelation 8. It's actually part of the same story, the same narrative. And in Revelation 9, he says, the apostle John, Jesus says, to this angel, he says, do not hurt those who are sealed in Christ. Do not hurt those who have my righteousness upon their forehead. Listen, this is not a threat to the Christian. There's nothing to fear here for the Christian, for those who are sealed, for those who are in Christ, for those who have professed faith in the finished work of Jesus, right? The only one who's able to open these scrolls. There is nothing for us to fear, church. That's not what Revelation was written for. It was written to give us Hope. It was written to empower, to encourage us to stand, to toe the line, to hold the line, and to storm the gates of hell with the passion of Christ, fearless in Christ. Are you with me? So to be clear, nothing to fear in this, right? Some residue might hit us, most certainly, but that happens now. Terrible things happen all the time to people. Those are just birth pains of this. So if you find yourself anxious, let me just mind you, take a breath. And know that in Christ, there is nothing to fear here. All right? Amen? Big idea is this. God is faithful to answer every prayer of the saint. God is faithful to answer every prayer of the saint. That's you as a Christian. Saint means Christian. Three points I have for you. The prayers of the saints. Real simple. The prayers of the saints. Second point, the answer to those prayers. And the third point is our prayers to a God who answers. And at the end, I've invited, I've asked Jeff and them to actually learn a song this week uh, and play it for us. And so they're going to lead us in a worship song. And then I'm going to come up and I'm going to lead us through about five minutes of focused prayer as a response to the gospel. Sound good? Okay. Good. Praying it goes the way it did in the first gathering. It was, it was really intense and awesome. All right, ready? The prayers of the saints, Revelation 8, verses 1 through 5. When you're ready, say ready. ready. Here we go. When the Lamb, Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Okay, that means in the Greek, just a short while. English says about a half an hour. Greek says a short while. Verse 2, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. So a golden censer, for those of you that are crunchy in the room, that is like your diffuser that you use for your essential oils, okay? But it's old school, which means it's like hipster, right? It's OG. And what they would do is they would take these little spoon-like contraptions and put incense in there and light a fire underneath it, and then the smoke would come up from that. No electricity, just the kingdom of God, an angel, and a lighter. And he was 
given, here it is, and he was given much incense, offering, that is, to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, you see it? The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, along with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. So here's what's happening. Two weeks ago, Pastor David unpacked for us the six seals, if you were here. If you weren't here, and you catch the podcast. Uh, there was only one who could open those seals. If you remember, there was a scroll that had been presented. All of, presented. All of heaven was crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Then the scroll comes out, and no one can open the scroll. And the apostle John, he begins to weep, and he's like, man, who's going to open the scroll? Like, how's the scroll going to be open? How's the kingdom of God going to be ushered in? And finally, the lamb walks in. Jesus walks in, and ping, he kicks the first seal off of that scroll, then the next, then the next, next, and all of heaven erupts again, and they say, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb, for salvation belongs to him, and they sing a whole new song unto Jesus, and in that, when Pastor David's sermon was being given, he talked to us about the four horsemen, do you remember the four horsemen, for those of you that were here? Okay, I'm, I got time. Famine, we talked about famine, we talked about the martyrs, we talked about the destruction on the earth. And so that was David's sermon. And so that was the sixth seal, up to the sixth seal. And then I got to swoop in and kind of hit this weird interlude where John stops looking at that for a minute and he looks at the worship of the saints. And there's all these Gentiles, that means not Jews, and all these Jews who are not allowed originally to even be in the same room together, yet here they are, perfectly clean, spotless, worshiping this Jesus. It was an incredible moment. Now what happens is we kind of, we're out of that interlude and we're back into kind of this story. And chapter 8 is saying this, the seventh seal has been popped open and there is complete silence. Complete and total silence in the kingdom of God for a short while. There is a stillness in the heavens in this moment. If there's a longing that this moment is finally here, there are people, man, they are watching, they are anticipating. You have all this angelic host, you have all these saints that are watching, 10,000 times 10,000 seraphim angels. It says their voices of their, the, the, their voices alone, not even God's voices, but their voices shook the foundations of the earth that their wings would create a gust of wind that would blow across the whole entire earth, if you remember, like the rumble of just the angels, okay? Just seven of the 10,000 times 10,000 angels. And yet, in the midst of all of this worship and everything that is happening, silence. The Bible says that the creation groans with labor pains for this moment in time right here. All of creation has been anticipating this time. All the Old Testament, all the New Testament, like we talked about last week, all of the prophecies pointing to this moment. Here are some of those prophecies. Habakkuk 2, 19 through 20. We're going back to the Old Testament. Miss Debbie, Habakkuk 2. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach. The prophet is saying, woe to those who look at pieces of wood, look at pieces of stones and worship them as if they're alive. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. He's saying, no, they're, all, these idols are only 
dead. They might look pretty. They might look beautiful. But these little false gods are 100% dead. They are useless. They cannot teach. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. If you remember Revelation 1, whenever the apostle John saw this Jesus, while he did have some burnished bronze legs, it said he was completely and totally alive on the inside. What did the apostle John do whenever he saw him? He fell as though what? Dead. Keep silent before this Lord. There's only one God who's alive and active, and he don't exist in sticks and stones. All right? All right? Zephaniah 1, 7 The day of the Lord, literally the moment we're talking about in Revelation, the day of the Lord is near. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and has consecrated, that is, has sanctified, has set apart, has put his name upon, sealed them in, placed his name upon his Yes, the day of the Lord is near, and the day of the Lord has prepared a sacrifice for the Lord. Now, here's what's incredible. Whenever you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, it talks about the Jewish temple. There was a space in there for sacrifice, for animal sacrifice. There's also a space um, outside of that, uh, the inner temple, where you could do what's called burnt Offerings. And so depending on the sin one had to atone for, you would go in, you'd either do an animal sacrifice or you would do a burnt offering sacrifice. And of the burnt offerings, the Lord would say, that's a pleasing aroma to me. Now, in this kingdom, here in the spiritual, there's no longer a separation between temple or temple and man. There's no longer a separation even for the altars. And so what is happening here in the text, within the context, in this kingdom, the sacrifices that are being presented before the Lord are not animals. They're the persecuted saints. They're the martyrs. Those who have died for preaching and proclaiming the gospel, that's the sacrifice that has been given to the Lord. Literally, their bodies are their sacrifice. And the aroma, the the smoke, the aroma, the incense that is pleasing to the Lord is what? Dude, it's the prayer of the saints. These persecuted Christians, martyred Christians, have been crying out to their father, And he's listening and he's hearing and all of creation is standing silent. And he's saying, I see your sacrifice, man. And in some, I smell your prayers, to put it weird like that. But it's a pleasing aroma unto the Father. How do you know? Because Revelation 6, we read it and we preached on it. Revelation 6, 9 said, whenever he, that's Jesus, opened the fifth seal, backing up two seals now. When he opened the fifth seal on that scroll, he said, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. They'd been killed for their faith. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign God, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Is this not our prayer sometimes, church? How long, Lord, until justice is served? Then they were each given a white robe. Listen to this. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So here the saints are. They're crying out two, three chapters earlier. It's crying out to their father, and he just looks at them like a good dad and says, just rest a little longer, child. All that you desire will be fulfilled. All that you could ever crave will find a resounding amen in the Lamb of God, and his name is Jesus. He says, rest a little longer. 
until the number of their fellow servants, there are more martyrs that are coming, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. He's saying the martyrdom is not yet over. Justice cannot yet be served for those who are martyrs are not yet complete. Rest a little while longer. Justice is coming. I just want you to think about this with me for just a minute, man. Is this prayer here, how long, O oh Lord, until you avenge our blood? Man, is that not our prayer sometimes? I'm going to tell you right now, if that's not your prayer, it needs to be. Like, if that's not the prayer you're praying to this Jesus, we're not living in the same world. I wrote down just some of the things that I've been praying for lately and praying for when we started going through the Psalms. Like, was it not the psalmist? Was it not their plea of how long, O Lord, as the psalmist? Was it not the plea of King David whenever the enemies are circling around him, banding together to kill him? Did he not say, how long, O Lord, will, your, will my enemies be coming Against me, how long will they seek my life? How long will they seek my blood? How long do I have to set in this tension? Church, that should be the plea. That should be our prayer right there. How long, O Lord? Here's a few things just to prove the point to you. How long, O Lord, will injustice happen in our culture? Are we not praying that prayer? How long, O Lord, will racism be a theme and a narrative for us in America and around the world? How long, O Lord, will our culture literally be at war with one another? There is no rest in our culture right now. Everyone's waving a banner that is higher than the other banner, claiming inclusivity while mad because your banner is more important than my banner or whatever. And there's just this crazy cultural war that is happening right now. Should we not be praying the prayer of how long, oh Lord, do we have to set in this tension? I mean, think about last week, man, I showed up and I had a migraine 20 minutes before I had to preach. How long, oh Lord, will my body keep failing me? How long, oh Lord, do we have to set under the weight of anxiety and that tension? How long, oh Lord, does depression have to keep welling up in my soul and in my bones? How long, oh Lord, do I have to experience insomnia because I can't sleep because I'm ridden with anxiety? How long, oh Lord? Do we not, are you not praying these prayers a little bit? How long, O oh Lord, do I have to remain single and unhappy? How long, O oh Lord, do I have to remain married and not even happy within that relationship? How long, O oh Lord, do we have to sleep in separate rooms? How long, O oh Lord, do we have to keep fighting about the most ridiculous and dumb things? How long? This should be your heart, church. Pling, are you happy? Like with all of that, we can keep going. You want to keep going? How long, oh Lord, should I have to wage war against the desires of my flesh? There's so much of our culture right now. How long, oh Lord, shall I not even feel comfortable in my own skin? I don't even know how to identify anymore. How long, oh Lord, do I have to wage war against these temptations? How long, oh Lord? And there's more. How long, Lord, does emotional abuse have to keep, keep taking place in our family? Sexual abuse, rape, incest, injustice. I was thinking earlier about invisible soldiers in Zambia, little boys and girls, six, seven years old, that are robbed from their families, injected with heroin until they're addicted, handed AK-47s to go fight a genocide that they're not, they have nothing to do with. That's the world we live in, okay? Don't let Starbucks 
cloud your vision. That's the world, church, that we live in. How long do little boys and little girls have to die from diarrhea when we have enough water to give it to everyone? How long, oh Lord, does this injustice have to come? I mean, gosh, this is what they're crying. This is the the cry of the saints to their father. And God simply looks at them and he says, just a little longer, my child. Just a little bit longer. Feels like an eternity for us whenever you exist outside of time and space. It's just a little bit longer. And so they're crying out. That's That's the aroma. That's what's pleasing to him, the sacrifice he sees is those martyrs, the, the smell, the aroma that he's experiencing is their prayers. And he looks at him, he says, just a little while longer, kiddo, because dad's about to bring demo day. And then he responds here, the answer to those prayers, second point, the answer to those prayers. Then the angel took the censer, that little dish that would have incense in it, and filled it with the fire from the altar, and he threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder rumbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Here's the deal. Not only do we have a God who listens, church, but we have a God who most certainly will respond. He will respond to our pleas, the prayers of the saints. Oh my gosh, the prayers of the saints that have been lifted up simply rain back down in the form of judgment on everything that is unrighteous or on a third of everything that is unrighteous. Listen here. God is going to answer your prayers. Now, you might be sitting here in a similar fashion to those saints. You might say, well, pastor, I've been praying. I've been praying for a lot of the things that you just mentioned. I can identify with that. How long, oh, Lord, fill in the blank. I've been praying this prayer, and I'm not seeing him respond. How do you make sense of that? How do you know? I would say there's a few different things. One, you might be praying the wrong prayer. Maybe you need to pray and ask the Lord, what ought you pray? We're going to get to that in Romans in a minute. Maybe you're looking, maybe you're only praying prayers that you yourself can answer. And you can answer them apart from being dependent upon this God to answer your prayer. That's a real possibility as well. Maybe you're not praying kingdom prayers where you're praying more of a selfish entitled prayer instead of praying things that exalt this Jesus and this spirit and his work in your place as your substitute. Maybe he just has you in a season because he's going to look at you one day in the end. He's going to say, now it's answered. Everything you could have ever pled for, everything you could have ever begged for has been given to you in totality, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The lamb has brought you home. Real possibility. Romans eight twenty six says this. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. That should terrify us, church. And at the same time, so encouraging. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Dude, in selfishness and sin, sometimes because of experience and circumstance, we don't even know what to pray. Because of the depravity of the world that we've been born into and the curse of Adam and Eve that we've been born into. Listen, you, don't, you and I, we don't even know what to pray. And so like not, think of, oh my gosh, think about this. Not only does God answer that prayer in the end, but in the midst of praying the prayer, the Holy Spirit, which is the very power of God that spoke creation into existence, that brought you to faith, gave you new life and regeneration. That Holy Spirit, so insane, sneaks in there and goes, no, 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 no. That's not what Corey wanted to pray. That's not what he needs. He doesn't need security in money. He doesn't need his kids to be 
safe. He doesn't need his marriage to go swimmingly all the time. He needs you. And the Holy Spirit, the very power of God himself on display in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and says, with groaning, if you can picture in your mind, like the Holy Spirit on his knees before the throne room of the, in the throne room before the Father, just pleading for his brothers and sisters. That's not what they need. They need presence. They need you. They need Jesus. He doesn't need, Corey doesn't need a great marriage. He needs his wife to see a great God in him and his failures. Help him fail, Father, so he can be dependent on you. And his kids can see that. And his kids can see a repentant man. And his wife can see a repentant man. And his coworkers and his church body can see a repentant man. That's not what he needs. You know what he needs? He needs a retinal migraine 20 minutes before he goes to preach so he can be put into a posture of dependency on you because he thought too highly of himself that morning. That's what he needs. You tracking? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes in. He says, that's not it. This is it. And then he prays perfectly on your behalf to the Father through the power of the Son because of his work. That's what actually happens when we pray. Now, because that's true, it's the reality is this. We might be saying, how long, O oh Lord? Because we're not looking for those results. We're looking for results that we can muster up ourselves post-prayer. And yet here we have this incredible Father that is looking upon his sons and looking upon his daughters, and he says, I have heard every single plea you could ever plead. And every single bit of justice that you desire is about to be yours. And then one third of everything that is unrighteous is obliterated. That's what it looks like for God to answer your prayers. In some ways, I would be careful what you pray for. This is a holy, triune, incredible God. Ruling, reigning, in majesty. Silence is the only right response sometimes when you come before this God. Maybe you're using too many words in your prayer. Maybe you just need to sit in silence. Just get to know him a little bit. So he says, just be patient. One third of everything is going to be Destroyed. Now, before we get into this, I think the tendency here for the skeptic or maybe someone who's been uh, taught this inappropriately, the tendency is, that, is to say, isn't this a little dramatic, Pastor? Like a third of, a third of everything? I'm going to give you a spoiler here, okay? Spoiler alert. After this, one third of destruction, God creates an opportunity for the people to repent that are left. And he, he leads them. He says, hey, in mercy, he allows two-thirds it could have been three-thirds. Now, my math ain't that good, okay? But that's everything. He did one-third, okay? One-third, which means two-thirds is still there. Far more grace than humanity deserves. Well, that sounds harsh, Pastor. Well, here's what happens. Of those that he leaves to repent and cling to this mercy, do you know what they do? He sends two witnesses here in a couple chapters to preach the gospel to these people that are left and they murder the witnesses, humanity does, and they dance and sing around their dead bodies. That's the world that we live in. We forget that in America, sometimes. But it takes that sort of evil to inject heroin into a seven-year-old and hand him an AK-47. That's the evil that's here. Now we're going to get into what it looks like. One-third, Revelation 8, 7 through 12. It goes like this, verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, 
and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Keep in mind, as we're reading this, this is written to them, not to us initially. They're an agrarian culture. So God removes a third of everything that they would be dependent on for their own agrarian farmland. Does that make sense? Verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet, and, the second, and, sorry, and something like a great mountain, picture this, burning with fire, if you can see that in your mind, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. This is imagery. All this imagery, nothing is new. You can find all the same imagery in the book of Exodus whenever God removed Israelite from Egyptian exile. Same stuff. Imagery from the early church. Now, think about this. Why would, written to the early church, why would God affect the seas? Well, where did war take place and they could show their power, display their power? Happened on the seas. Where did they make a lot of their money? Through the trade and through commerce. They did it through the seas, specifically in the Roman Empire, the greatest empire to ever exist. How did they travel? Well, they would walk, but they would also travel by what? Travel by sea. So he's affecting their power. He's affecting their authority. He's affecting their commerce. He's affecting their travel. Revelation 8.10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, perhaps a real, an actual star, perhaps an angelic host. We're not completely sure. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. That's actually out of the Old Testament. Whenever a plague hit and the water was uh, cursed with Wormwood, people got sick. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. There's an Old Testament reference, nothing new here to see. Same things. What's he doing? He's removing everyday luxuries. This is a picture of everyday luxuries for them. This is what the river water would have been used for, washing, cleaning, drinking, so on and so forth. Revelation 8:12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that it a third of their night might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining. And likewise, a third of the night. The, not the total, but a third of removal of all the light. What is that? What's the point of that? It's everyday luxury. Things that, we, that they took for granted, something that they took for granted of, took, took for granted every day. Light. How often do you take light for granted? About the time, if you live in Collinsville, power goes out here all the time, right? We get hit with that, the wind blows and power goes out. You're like, oh gosh, here we go. But we take that for granted, yeah? And so if you sum it up, think about this. I'm going to try to lead you here somewhere to consider something. First trumpet, their jobs and their food were altered. Second trumpet, their transportation. Imagine if there was a travel ban. I'm not saying this is the same thing. I'm just, let me take you there. Third trumpet, their basic necessities were gone. And the fourth trumpet, the things, the luxuries that they took for granted were taken away. And they still won't respond to the gospel. Here's what I want you to consider. I'm not saying these are the same things. I'm going to point you to some birth pains that are foreshadowing this. Hypothetically, let's say that for a year and a half of your life, just hypothetically, you were told to stand six feet apart from someone, wear a mask, had to navigate travel bans, couldn't buy some basic necessities, and increasingly realize that some of your luxuries are being taken away. How would you respond? I'm not saying that's this. What I'm saying is that we walked through a year and a half of a pretty dark time, didn't we? Pretty messy, pretty hard, realistically difficult, a lot of death, a lot of suffering, a lot of anxiety, a lot, a, lot, a lot of different things. God used that moment in time. God used COVID to lead us as a church body and as Christians in general around the globe to either profess further dependency on him or to reveal we weren't that dependent on him to begin with. 
COVID, for as devastating as it was, and is in some ways still, was just birth pains of this reality right here. What's going to happen here, and specifically next week, next week's going to get really dark. What's happening here in the text makes COVID look like a day at the spa. Easy. I mean, we're talking about a third of everything gone here. And think about it. You think, how could people respond? How could they not respond well? How could they not repent? Why would they not run to Jesus? How could they kill the witnesses in a couple of chapters? I would argue the church did not respond any differently during COVID than they're going to respond here in Revelation. Right? God gave an opportunity. He said, you're either going to model dependency on me or you're going to run from me. And the reality is this, the church in a lot of ways, church, the church in a lot of ways, man, they responded faithfully and they ran to the Lord and they used that time at home to bunker down, man, and to spend time in prayer, like wore holes in their knees praying to the Lord, wore their Bible out. I mean, the Bible looked ratty after a year and a half. Praise the Lord, and they fought for their marriage, man, and they fought for their friendships, and they fought for their families and parenting. But then there's also a great deal of professing Christians that looked really solid on the front end of that. And what we found is that they did not have any dependency on the Lord in that. They created opportunities to not tune in on Facebook and YouTube, and they created opportunities to not show up in a gathering, not because they were genuinely fearful or upset, but because they weren't dependent like, think about all the Christians, genuinely, in your mind. Think about it. Some of you in the room, some of you online, you came into that looking wildly dependent, yet the, at the moment you didn't have to be a Christian anymore, you didn't find yourself in a church gathering, but you sure did find yourself at Destin or Disney, yeah? And so to, to look at Disney, how could they? It's exactly what the church did. Why? Because the depravity of the world is such that it is evil enough to inject seven-year-olds seven with heroin, man, and it is evil enough to kill the very prophets that come to say, believe in Jesus. He's the only one that can redeem. He's the only one that can save. It actually says in a couple chapters, those who kill those prophets, kill them because they were offended by the gospel. Think about that for a second. Right? Our time is not that time. This is just birth pains of what is to happen. And so in the midst of this, God does not do anything crazy. All God is doing in this text, and specifically next week, he's matching unrighteousness with righteousness, and only a third of it at that. So what do we do? How do we respond to that text? How do we respond to this text, dude? We respond with the gospel. And here's how we find hope. One, this is the lamb, but here's the deal. The same lamb that can crack the seal of this scroll is the same lamb that hung on a tree for our sins. And here's the deal. That lamb of God, Jesus, not some cheesy cliche way, cliche way, that lamb that hung on that tree, he didn't experience a third of the wrath of God. He experienced every single ounce of it. He didn't experience a third of God's anger. He experienced all of God's anger. He didn't experience a third of his, God's, the Father's presence being gone. He didn't experience a third of it being gone. He experienced total and absolute Nothing. The father turned his face away, not a third of his face away, turns forever, turns away from the son while he's bearing our sins on the cross. Why? So we can pray prayers as saints and know that we have a good dad that listens to him, hears him, and responds to him. There's hope in the gospel. 
Right? We don't turn in disbelief. We don't turn in a lack of hope or fear. Rather, we toe the line, man. We charge the gates of hell with the passion of Christ because we have a dad who stands at the helm of this thing. Ruling, reigning, sovereign protection over every single saint. All who are sealed in him. All whose righteousness is placed upon their head. That's the gospel. We didn't do anything to earn it. We don't deserve it. We didn't show up one day and be really, really impressive to him. No. He looked upon us, saw our state, and said, I'm going to send my son. The only one who's worthy to crack this seal, I'm going to kill him for you. I'm going to crack him in your place as your substitute by nothing you could have ever done. That is the hope of the gospel, church. That's the only thing we have to cling to. It's not religion. It's not legalism. It's Jesus. That is the gospel. That is how we respond. Now, I asked the team to learn a song for me. I don't meddle. You guys can come up. I don't meddle much in Sunday. Um, I just show up and preach, and then I leave. Okay, that's it. That's all that they let me do. For good reason. I don't sing. I don't play instruments. I barely talk well. So... I asked the team, though, to learn a song. Uh, there's a song that I just, man, I've just been vibing with the last month, man. As I've been on vacation, as I was reading Revelation, uh, for those of you in the church that know us, know our family, you know some of our story. Uh, we got some pretty heavy things happening. We have a pretty heavy court date coming up here in about three weeks. And I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't need a God that just listens. Like, I need a God that responds. And so I've been... Listening to the song as I've been writing, preparing, kind of journaling. So I asked them to, to learn it, and Jeff was super gracious and let me meddle. And uh, in the midst of having to officiate a funeral and in the midst of having to help with kids at a skate camp every day, all week long, somehow this man learned this song with his team and with the, your brothers and sisters. So they're going to lead us to this song. Uh, and then I'm going to come up. And we're going to spend about five minutes in really focused, genuine prayer. All right? And during that time, I'm going to invite you to stand. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me? When we get to this prayer portion, man, you can sit. Uh, you can stand. You can turn around and get on your knees and use your chair as an altar if you want to. Uh, you can hold your hand. If you don't know what to do with your hands, put them like this. Uh, whatever you want to do, we're gonna, I'm going to give you space to do that in the way that the Spirit is calling you to do that. And I'm going to invite you to genuinely, listen to me now, to genuinely believe you have a God who not only hears your prayer, but listen, but responds to it. He not only listens, but he responds. And while you might not see the evidence of that, this side of this kingdom, that all of your prayers in this room, outside of this room, online, everywhere else, that you will ever pray, will have a resounding yes and amen in Christ Jesus.